Let's pray again. Father, we do thank you again for tonight. What a joy it is to be together, to hear the testimony of these ladies and what they learned even this week as you brought them together for this conference. Lord, what a joy it is to know that you care for us such in such a way that you would teach us like you do and inform us about you and your holiness so that we might reflect that in our lives. We thank you for that. Lord, we look forward to the impact that that will be in the lives of these ladies as well as the lives of all of us who are interacting with this body. What a joy it is to see what you will accomplish in the future. Lord, tonight as we open your word once again, that you would attend to our time, that you would bless us by the hearing of it and the study of it. And use it in our lives for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. It's interesting hearing your ladies talk about memorizing Scripture and that if you talk fast into a microphone that you will and record that, it's something in the brain. So I'm going to try to talk really fast. <laughs> When I was an air traffic controller in my previous days, I would get busy from time to time, sometimes having 15, 20 airplanes on my frequency at one time, and my boss would come over and say, when you get busy, just talk faster. And uh, if that doesn't scare you about our air traffic system, it should. <laughs> All right, the book of Ephesians. We are returning to our study of Ephesians chapter 2, and I, and I want to begin tonight by having us think of our world and the ever-increasing polarization that we are seeing going on. Obviously, we are currently living in and witnessing in our world the polarization of people against one another at really lightning speed, and it is fueled with vehement hatred, it seems. It doesn't matter what sector of life you interact with or where you look, the level of alienation and disdain for Others is rampant everywhere. There is hatred expressed within the workplace. There is hatred within the homes and within neighborhoods where you have people lashing out at others because they don't like what one person is doing or what the other person is saying. In the workplace, there are belief systems that clash between employees so that even disgruntled employees lash out in anger and rage at fellow workers, sometimes even murdering them. Our societies are under a full frontal assault from within our own boundaries because ideologies about the meaning and beginning of life in babies is denied because the defining of the family is viewed as bigoted against homosexuality, because there is assumed alienation against those who say that gender is fluid and can be decided by anyone and on a whim. There's differing ethnic groups divided and they rage against other ethnic groups because of the amount of melanin that God, our Creator, put in your skin. Violence is around every corner. doesn't matter if you go to the grocery store or to the schoolyard, it seems as if we live in the worst of times. 
And it's true, we, we certainly are living in dangerous and sinful days. And if you ponder it at all, you can get very cynical about life itself. And yet, if you spend any time looking back at history, particularly that of the ancient world, you quickly learn that all of the barriers and all of the alienation that our modern world is facing as man stands against his fellow man, all of the ethnic separation that we call racism, all of the social separation, all of the national clashes that go on between countries are no more than what was taking place thousands of years ago between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what I want to talk about tonight is not a message that is directed against Jews in any way. Someone, even as we record this message, may at some point try to say this is some kind of anti-Semitic message, which it is not. Our Savior came from the Jews. We love the Jews as a people. And yet history shows us that in biblical times, the alienation between Gentiles and the Jews was clear and it was severely dangerous. In fact, as you watch the news unfold about Israel today, it is tied back to that very alienation that started thousands of years ago between the children of Abraham. In the days when Jesus walked upon his creation and every and ever since then, the mindset of the religious Jew is that those who are not Jewish are simply created to fuel the fires of hell. That's the mindset. In fact, in ancient Jewish tradition, it was not lawful to even help a Gentile woman laboring to give birth. Why? Simply because she was only bringing into the world another pagan. The hatred wasn't expressed only from the Jews, however. The Gentiles had their expressions of hate to the Jewish people as well. You read Greek philosophers, many of the Greek philosophers of the day said that anyone non-Greek, that just simply means anyone that's Jewish, so anyone that's not a Gentile was only a barbarian. And they said, quote, Greeks wage an endless war against barbarians. Unquote. In other words, Jews or Gentiles are in a perpetual hatred of Jews. And so it's no wonder that we see what's going on in our world today and happening. And so if you were to grow up in that kind of society, this kind of societal hatred was inbred in you. It was taught to you. It was systemic to your upbringing. It didn't matter which side of the fence you were on. It was part of who you were. You knew nothing else. And so the kind of collision that we see happening today is inevitable. And the reality is that God is saving people out of that, and yet we bring that kind of baggage into the church. And of course, none of this alienation is the expression of the likeness of Jesus Christ. This kind of thing only divides, and it is in Christ and through Christ, it is in 
the truth that we find actual unity. And of course, we understand that, that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, he is writing to a Gentile church. This is a church primarily made up of Gentile believers. In fact, a church planted in one of the centers of Gentile idolatry in Ephesus. They worship the goddess Diana. Why? Because it was believed that she had the power of fertility. And so they worshiped this idol. And so it was no wonder that religiously ethnic clashes would come. And in order to combat that kind of destructive nature upon the church, the disunity that it breeds in the church, and to show the world that true peace and true unity, look like, what that looks like and what it can do, the Apostle Paul explains the wonder and majesty of all that each and every Christian has by being united with Jesus Christ. And of course, chapter 1 of Ephesians is filled with all of those glorious truths about our union with Christ. In fact, it was read this morning before we sang our hymns, that grand truth in Ephesians chapter 1 that lists all the wonder that we have by being united with Christ through God's sovereign plan. And then, of course, we came to chapter 2, and it takes us back, back in history really, to look at the reality of our separation from God, the separation of our soul from Him before He saved us. It says we were dead. We weren't alive at all, and being saved had nothing to do with us. It's all the work of God. We are His masterpieces, and He has created us to work for Him. But all of that can be easily upended by disunity. And so while the Gentiles were nothing but dogs to the Jews, and the Jews were nothing but barbarians to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul says this to the Gentile church, and he really is saying this to all of us as Christians. Notice what he says beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having, been, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit 
to the Father. Our world is filled with alienation. It's filled with separation. And the question is, why? Well, if, if we are reading this text here in Ephesians chapter 2 correctly, and if we are understanding it as we ought to understand it, then we can clearly see that it is not a social problem. It is not a cultural problem. It is not even a governmental or ethnic problem. The problem is a spiritual problem. And of course, I think we already understand that the greatest problem with mankind is that they are alienated from God because of sin. All right, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 makes that patently clear. In just the first few verses, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is all of us. That's why he says, among them we too all formerly live. Paul is saying, you Gentiles were dead in your sins, but we too were dead in our sins as Jews. We were all dead in our sins. That's the condition. The spiritually dead only do that which is of deadness. And therefore, they only live unrighteously because righteousness is found only in and through God. Therefore, born into the very nature of our deadness is alienation, the desire to get rid of those we do not like and keep around those who are like us. The spiritually dead hate one another because they hate the one true God. And they're unable and unwilling to come to Him. And so what do they do? They exercise their spiritual alienation. How? Through societal alienation. They alienate those they hate. They drop bombs on them. They kill one another. And the sad part of that reality is that far too often, even we who are Christians, true Christians, allow that kind of attitude to infiltrate the church. Churches are at each other's throats. We treat others with contempt. Too often we refuse to be with others. Not because it's righteous. Not because we're standing on the truth and someone else is denying the truth. Not because of some righteous reason, but simply sinfully. We sinfully don't like them. And this had the potential of being acute in the church in Ephesus as it was being founded. And so in order to bring truth to bear to that kind of situation, Paul needs to address it. And so Paul first reminds them of their past. You were dead. You were dead. He did that in the first 10 verses. And then when you get to verse 11, he attaches all that he's saying now to verses 1 through 10 in who they are in their personhood. That's why you have the word therefore there. It takes us back. So in order for them to understand how to deal with alienation, both in their exercise and in their own heart, they have to understand who they were in the past. He has done that already in 
verses 1 through 10, speaking about both Jews and Gentiles in general. We are all dead in sin, but now he's getting more personal. He's getting more direct. He's turning up the heat. He's, as one friend of mine said one time, he's standing on their air hose. So they start gasping for air, thinking about themselves. He's getting personal with these believers, and he shows them the past contrast between them when it came to their lives before God as unbelievers. Notice that he uses the term flesh. Remember that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. You see that there? And he says it again, which is performed in the flesh. Gentiles in the flesh. Now they are Gentiles in the spirit. Now that they're believers, they're still Gentiles. But before, they were Gentiles in the flesh. But so were the Jews. They were Jews in the flesh. And Paul uses terms to describe that reality by saying circumcised and uncircumcised. Performed in the flesh by human hands. In other words, the Jews were focusing everything on the externals. If you're not us externally, then you're not of us. We alienate ourselves from you. The distinctions for them were all societal. The distinctions for them were all religious. But Paul wants the Gentiles to know that even then, even then in the eyes of God, they were disadvantaged as a people. And he lists five ways they were disadvantaged. And I just want to quickly cover these tonight. Five ways the Jews were, or the Gentiles were disadvantaged as those outside of the Jewish community. Notice what he says in verse 12. At that time, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. This is the first, this is the first way in which they were disadvantaged. They were separated from Christ. You say, in what way? How How were they separate from Christ? Well, they were separate in a Romans 9 kind of way. We read some of Romans 9 this morning. The Jews, Paul says before that in Romans chapter 9, what we read this morning, he says the Jews were privileged from God because they had the oracles of God. They were given the word of God. They, uh, the privilege from God Uh, Through the patriarchs of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were many as God had made promises to the Jewish people. Jesus Christ had come to, to the world through the Jewish nation, through being born into that nation as a people that God had chosen. Jesus came from the Jews and the Gentiles were outside of that privilege. We, many of us here, aren't Jews at all. Not by heritage. In fact, John's gospel says he came to his own and his own received him not. This is exactly who Jesus came to. And so Paul says, remember, remember before. Listen, if you want to deal with alienation in your heart, remember who you were before. You you were outside of that. You were separate from Christ. You were a non-Jew in that sense. You were outside of Christ. Christ came from the Jews. You weren't even part of that. 
Then he says, secondly, you were, you were excluded from being even part of Israel. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, there were spiritual advantages for being Jewish. Remember that Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 22, he said, you worship that which you do not know. She was a half-breed Jew, Samaritan woman. But we, we the Jewish people, we worship that which we know because salvation is from the Jews. It was great privilege in that. Jesus wasn't making some kind of ethnic distinction. He was simply relaying the facts of salvation history. God had brought salvation to the world through the Jews. God had chosen to be known by Israel. And in that day, in the mind of a Jew, if someone was to be saved, they had to become a member of the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, there was no way to God unless you were a proselyte. You were outside of being Jewish in heritage. You had to become a proselyte Jew in order to have any relationship with God whatsoever. And I think this is interesting because I think it's clearly seen even when you think through the Old Testament in the actions of Ruth, Ruth was a Gentile, a Moabite. She certainly had seen Naomi as she was in her land, and of course Naomi loses much of her family. And Ruth says this to Naomi when Naomi was going to go back to her people. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. It's significant, I think, for us to understand that Ruth was going to see herself as if she was Jewish before the God of the Jews was to be her God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. In other words, Ruth understood that before she was excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, before, in her mind, she knew exactly what Paul's saying about the Gentiles in the commonwealth of Israel. You're not part of that. You were excluded from that. Ruth knew that. She knew she would need to be like them to receive their God. So the Gentiles were spiritually Christless, alien to the Messiah. They were spiritually homeless, alien from God's nation. And then Paul says, thirdly, remember that you were alien to the promises of God. Notice what he says, you're not only separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, but you're strangers to the covenants of promise. To say, to say that just simply is to say they were spiritual foreigners. Spiritual foreigners. They, they were not given the promises that God had given to Abraham. Gentile people knew nothing of God's covenant promise unless some Jew told them what God had said to them. But God's promises provided for His people. 
It provided through the Abrahamic covenant. It provided a land that they would live in, a blessing that they would have, a a people that would be numerous as the stars. And the blessing for the whole earth would be through them, i.e. Jesus Christ coming to the earth to save through the the Jews. The Gentiles had no share in those promises. God didn't give those promises to Israel the Gentile nations in person, and in a spiritual sense, this was true of all unbelievers. It's only the mind unmoved by the power of the Holy Spirit. They they don't understand these things. They don't understand the things of God. They are alien to Him. So the promises of the covenant of God are alien to all Gentiles, to all people who are spiritually dead because they don't understand them. We saw that in 1 Corinthians this morning. They're foolishness to them. And so Paul says, listen, you are you're without a you're without any idea of Christ, without any idea of having some kind of national Uh, direction from God, you are strangers to the covenants of promise, and number four, you are without hope. You're without hope. You have no hope. No hope. There's no greater or terrifying reality than to be hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. And Paul says they were without hope. In other words, they had nothing because they there was nothing to be had. Separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers to the promises, what else is there? It's a hopeless situation. Being without hope meant they were completely lost. There was nothing. And that's really us. That's all people who spiritually, right, without the work of God in us, we're all hopeless. We have nothing. Is there any wonder the world lashes out against itself? What you see happening in our world today through the wars that are happening, the fighting that's going on, the desire to destroy, the desire to get rid of and annihilate one another comes not from a heart that's desiring good, but from a heart that desires nothing but uh, the worst because it's a hopeless heart. Hopeless. They're all straining for some kind of hope, albeit futile. And apart from God's revelation, apart from God opening our eyes, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one can have hope of anything in this life, let alone eternity. So why is life so hopeless? Paul says, here's the fifth way you were, because you were without God in the world. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. James 1.17 tells us that God is the source of every good thing. Now think about that. God is the source of every good thing. So if we are without God, then we are without any good thing. When Paul says you're without God in the world, Paul says there's nothing good for you even though it may seem otherwise. It is not good. 
alien to Christ, alien to God's people, alien to the promises, alien to hope, alien to God. They weren't without religion. They had all kinds of religion. They had all kinds of places of worship, but they were godless in every way. Idols are nothing. What, what is it then that fixes the problem? We look at our world, we look at what's going on, we look at our own country, we look at the countries around the globe, we look at life. What fixes the problem? What stamps out alienation among people? What keeps, what keeps the church from being fractured? What keeps the church from splitting apart? What keeps disunity out of the church? What cures that among us as people in the church? Well, it's a one-word answer, and we ought to all know the word, and the word simply is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Notice what Paul says, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished in His flesh the enmity, which is the commandments contained in ordinances, so that He Himself, He, might make the two into one new man. Establishing peace. He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it having put to death the enmity. The answer, beloved, to alienation is not societal change. It is not going back to the golden age where we thought morality was on the up and up. It is not social acceptance. We are not going to find peace in this country. We are not going to find peace in our world by everybody doing what is right in their own eyes and we all somehow try to get along and accept it. Societal acceptance isn't going to fix the problem. It is not governmental regulations and laws for those who seemingly are in the minority. It's not going to fix the problem. It isn't a form of tolerance that only tolerates those who agree. The answer is reconciliation. The answer for disunity is genuine reconciliation. The answer for alienation is reconciliation. The answer is grown from the rich soil of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. Now in Jesus Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself, that's a very emphatic way of saying He's the only one who could have done it. He Himself is our peace. You notice He doesn't say that Jesus brings some kind of system by which we can come together and agree and have peace together? You notice he doesn't say that? He doesn't say, hey, we have this treaty now that we can all just get along. We, we agree to this and, and we do these things. No, it says he is our peace. 
He is our peace. What is Paul saying? He's telling us that the only thing that fixes any kind of disunity is the genuine reality of the sacrifice of Christ, which puts an end, get this, to any personal division. Any. For he himself is our peace. That's a way of saying you can't do it on your own. It can't be accomplished by your own efforts. You don't have the capacity to do it. The only way of reconciliation is through the death of Jesus Christ. That's it. You have trouble with a brother and sister in Christ. You have trouble in the church. The only way to bring peace is to remember what we have, that Christ is our peace, that we are together in Christ. Why are we bickering? The Apostle Paul certainly was thinking probably of the dividing wall that surrounded the inner courtyards of the Jewish temple when he was thinking about this. Thinking about that as as an example of how alienation works. No Gentile would ever be allowed into the inner courtyard in the temple. They had to remain out in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And and the distinction was stark. The distinction was significant. The temple during Paul's day was described by historian Josephus in this way. He said it had been built by Herod the Great to replace the older temple that was built in the days of Nehemiah. Much of it was overlaid with gold. It was probably the glory of the city. He said it sat on a raised platform. We know that today to be the Temple Mount. The temple was surrounded by courts. The innermost court was called the court of the priests. Why? Because only male members of the priest tribe of Levi were able to go into that area. The next court was the court of Israel. It could be entered by any male Jew. After that, there was the court of the women, which any Jew could enter, and which was called the court of women because that was the only place that women could go in the temple. And all of those courtyards were on the same levels. They were just separated by these various walls, but they were all on the same level and Divisions were not as significant for that as they were for the Gentiles because from the court of women you would go down five steps to a level area in which there was built a a five-foot stone wall. And that went around the temple area. And then after another level space, there was another 14 steps down to the court of the Gentiles. Josephus says that at intervals in the wall of that court, there were inscriptions that said this, no foreigner is permitted to enter the Jewish courts upon penalty of death. In other words, this is where you go. Don't go any farther. Why? Because you're separate from us. You're separate from Christ. You're separate from your strangers to the covenants. You have no hope. You're without God. Trespassers will be killed. Welcome to the church. So picture in your mind what Paul is saying. 
Paul is saying Christ removed the wall. He removed the alienation. He removed the separation. No more is there alienation between people. In other words, in Christ and through Christ, all people, Jews and Gentiles, have access to God. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual unity. All of that other stuff that separates us is meaningless. The answer to the problems in our day is not, like I said, social. It is not political. It is not even intellectual. The answer is spiritual. The answer comes through genuine reconciliation that comes only through Jesus Christ. Notice verses 15 through 18. Paul says he did that. He broke down the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having having put to death the enmity. Verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul says, through Jesus Christ. How is genuine reconciliation come? It only comes through Jesus Christ. All of the external attempts have been done away with, Paul says. All the external attempts to try to reconcile people together are meaningless. They don't work. Paul says, Jesus Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity. And then he says the enmity was the law of commandments. How did Jesus abolish the law? We have to think about that. How did Jesus abolish the law? Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And yet here is Paul saying, he abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law and commandments. How did Jesus abolish the law? Well, he abolished the law simply in this one way, by fulfilling the law. He nullifies it by fulfilling it all, and he fulfilled it all perfectly. That's what he said he would do. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Christ fulfilled the law's requirements. And in fulfilling the law's requirements, he thereby set its requirements for any of us aside so that now in Christ there is no condemnation because he has fulfilled that which we could not fulfill. The law brings condemnation because we'll never keep it. We can't keep it. And yet Jesus came and completely fulfilled the law and thereby nullified the demands of the law upon our lives for righteousness. Christ fulfills the law's requirements, thereby he sets aside the law's requirements. Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Remember that? By grace we have been saved. And in abolishing the law, what did Christ do? He created by means of a union with himself a new man. He breaks down the dividing wall, that is the 
what what keeps us alienated from God by means of us doing it and what alienates one another because we say, you got to do it my way. you got to do it my way. This is how I do it. This is what you ought to do. And that only brings disunity. Christ fulfills all the law of God so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man. And in doing that, he establishes peace. In other words, Jesus didn't take Jewish things and, and then Christianize them. And say, do it this way. I, I now have a new way. No, he didn't take Gentile thinking and Christianize it. No, that's not what he did. He, he brought peace between both by making them new in him. Remember how Paul said it back earlier? We are what? His workmanship, verse 10. We are created in Christ Jesus. We are the workmanship of God. We are the new creation of God in Christ Jesus for good works. And it's the works that God prepared beforehand that we should now walk in them. They are unified works. In other words, we are a new people in Christ Jesus. That means if we're Christians, it doesn't matter what ethnicity we are on this earth. It doesn't matter how much melanin we have in our skin or don't have in our skin. It doesn't matter what our economic status is. It doesn't matter the amount of, of, of friends we have or don't have. It doesn't matter if you are Arab or Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Asian or Russian. None of that matters. Why? Because in Christ we are one. In Christ we are a new people. All of the dividing walls that we used to separate us before are gone. All of those distinctions matter nothing. Well, but this is the answer for our world. This is the answer for alienation. This is the answer to what is called racism. Racism is not the fact that we are of different races and so we can hate one another. We are of the same race. We are of the human race. We might have different ethnicities, but we are of one race. We hate each other because we don't like someone else's ethnicity. And we tie that to all kinds of other nasty things that we like to call other people. The answer to prejudice, the answer to hatred, the answer to ethnic cruelty, the answer to divorce, the answer to marital struggle, the answer to strife in any kind of way, the answer to selfishness and hopelessness is not new rules, new regulations, more so upon us. The answer is Jesus Christ. <coughs> we need to understand the world will never know this kind of peace unless it is seen in the church. Talking to someone this last week about the church, and we were talking about the church in China, the underground church. Do you realize the underground church doesn't worry about bickering with one another in the church? You know why? Because they're wondering if the government's going to come shut them down. In America, you know where the biggest problems are in the evangelical church? In the church. Nobody from the outside is attacking us. We shouldn't be attacking one another on the inside. 
We have a huge responsibility to be the example to the world of reconciliation and not retaliation and hatred. That's our responsibility. The world ought to look at us and wonder, how in the world can those people, as weird as they are, and as different as they are, and from all the ethnic ways in which differences they come, how in the world can they get along? They had to wonder about that, and when they come ask us, we had to say, Jesus Christ. The only answer is Jesus Christ. If it is a problem in the church, if alienation is a problem in the church, and reconciliation is hard to find in the church, then we have no voice in the world. No voice. We have no business telling anybody about Jesus Christ if it hasn't affected us. Jesus Christ is our peace. Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ came and he put to death the enmity. He preached peace to you who are far away, that is to the Gentile, peace to you who are near the Jew, so that through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. This is where real reconciliation happens. The question we have for us tonight is simply this, how can we bring the message of reconciliation? How can we be an an agent of change? Well, I can say this. We won't be if we are alienated from one another based on things that have no bearing in truth at all. The only way we're going to be an agent of change is if we, through the power of Jesus Christ, are unified together and that this church stands strong. Why? Because true unity is only found in Christ. Let's not just say that. Let's live that. Let's live that. Let's pray. Father, I know tonight we've moved fast, but I trust it's been profitable for us to think about get a wide snapshot really of the world in which we live from the history of your church and how you have brought reconciliation to those who were alienated most and how all of that was based upon faulty views of you and what you are and who you are. Still today we find that even in religious circles. We find that in the church where we who claim to know you by our as our Savior still go after one another over petty little things over our own preferences, our own differences, the things we like and the things we don't like, and we alienate one another. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for dishonoring your name and the reconciliation that you brought to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to you, and reflecting that out to the world around us through how we are unified. Lord, I pray that we would live this out in our life with one another that if we have areas in which we are bitter 
where we're alienating ourselves from others for whatever reason, Lord, that we would think about Christ. Think about what you have done for us, how you pursued us so that we might be reconciled to you. Help us to live that way with our brothers and sisters. Lord, may this place be so filled with the unity of the Spirit that others just marvel. Not because of what we've done, but simply because we have a view of you that is born out of our understanding of the truth that you have brought down those dividing walls. And we understand that in Jesus Christ we're one. May that be the exercise of our life. And we'll praise you as we say each Lord's Day. We'll praise you all into glory. Help us begin that praise even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.